from chapter 2 of Galatians, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 5. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running, or had run, in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Let us pray. Father, truly, glory, honor, and adoration are to you now and forevermore. You have left us your word to, for our instruction, for our edification, for the building up of your church. And I, I do ask this morning that you would bless the hearers, bless us all as we hear the things that you have retained for us in this book. And we ask that it would be to your glory, it would be to your honor, to your adoration, as we see you at work among the people here, knowing that you have left us this faith, the faith of the apostle, for our own edification, for our own help, for our own salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're having trouble following Paul's timeline, join the club. It is not clear to me, as I realize it's not clear to those whom I study during the week, that there is an agreement on this particular visit of Paul to Jerusalem, as there is not agreement on what does he mean by an interval of 14 years, where do we date that from. And this passage itself is, has many issues, I guess you could say, with it. And so, again, my, my sympathy is with you. We've finished Galatians 1, and if you were, again, if we could kind of just reset the counters a little bit here, Galatians 1, if we were to simplify it, would be Paul's, again, is defense of the gospel, but it's the source of that gospel. The, where did it come from? He says, by divine revelation. In Galatians 2, we begin to get a sense of the contents of that gospel. Well, what is the gospel? And some of you have perhaps been a little impatient. And that's one of those, I guess, the hazards of preaching through a book verse by verse is that I can't preach chapter 2 by going and settling and camping in chapter 3 or in chapter 5 where he explains in more detail some of these things that we have to see why Paul wrote these things, why the Holy Spirit gave him these particular things to set before the Galatian hearers and before us as we read them today. 
He says that Paul, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. If you are looking in one of those more astute than me, the, the markers in chapter 1 of the, the major things that Paul is looking at in his travelogue begin with then. Verse 1, 18, then. In verse 21 of chapter 1, then I went. And now again, this third time, then I, after an interval of 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. Paul began preaching, I believe, immediately after his conversion in Damascus, except for those couple of days when he was blind. But after three years, I believe, we see that meeting with Peter and James in Jerusalem that we looked at in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 18. And we see at that time that no sanctions were placed on his ministry. There was no disagreement about Paul's gospel with James and Peter at that time. And now when he says after 14 years, it is either 14 years added on to that three, so 17 years after his conversion, or as many of the commentators believe, that this was a signal event in Paul's life, that that 14 years must refer back to his conversion, that time when his life was totally changed. As John Eady writes, it severed his former from his present self. And again, we have to be careful because we all did not come to Christ in that way, as we said, with that Damascus Road experience. And some of us can't look back at that particular day or hour when we knew that Christ had invaded our lives. And yet I had some good friends in college, Christian friends of mine, who would refer to their B.C. days, before Christ. And one, I, I said, you know, I didn't know that you were a football player. You were actually, was actually on the college football team and had quit in order to have more time for study and then ministry rather than practice. And I said, I didn't know that. And he said, well, that was in my B.C. days. And that was before Christ came into my life, when Christ changed me. I am no longer my former self. So uh, that might be an argument here for 14 years to his conversion. I don't believe it changes the point of the passage, but I re relate that to you because it, it, it's not easy to follow Paul's language here. Then, which trip to Jerusalem is this? Uh, some say that Paul made four trips to Jerusalem, some believe five. But if we look in the book of Acts and try to square these visits with that, the first visit, I believe, was probably um, Galatians 1.18, relating to Acts 9, where Paul went up and he had opposition, as we remember, from people in Jerusalem, but he did meet privately, but only for 15 days with Peter and then a little bit with James. The question then is this trip to Jerusalem, is that the one found in Acts 11 at the end where 
Paul and Barnabas go from Syrian Antioch to Jerusalem to deliver the relief for the famine victims. <coughs> or is it the third reference of Luke in Acts, in Acts chapter 15, the big ecumenical, actually it's the big Christian conference of all the apostles and elders. And there are arguments pro and con, I believe, for both. And, but both are somewhat unsatisfactory because it leaves you with a question. If Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem in Acts 11 to deliver the contribution, and I'll read from Acts 11, it says, each determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren in Judea. They were helping fellow Christians here, bringing monetary gifts to Jerusalem to go into the collection. And then if we couple that with Galatians 2, 1 through 5, he's meeting, or 1 through 10 really is the section, then he's meeting secretly, privately, with Peter and James and perhaps John without telling anyone. But if Paul really wanted to show that he did not get his gospel from the apostles, which is part of the reason for writing chapters 1 and 2, why would he conceal that visit? Why would he leave that for his opponents to say, hey, you're hiding something there? And if this section in Galatians 2 is from the Acts 15 version, where they go to the great council, and there were those who met there, that one of the reasons Paul went, he says, that there were some that were opposing his gospel, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And later on, when they're at the conference, he says there were Pharisees who came, and they were saying it is necessary to circumcise them, that is, believers, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. But if that is the conference where everyone got together, Peter gave his speech, and James took over as moderator of the conference, and they drafted a letter to be sent to the churches against this very thing, why does Paul not pull that ace out of his sleeve and play it in Galatians 2, 1 through 10? In addition to that, there are problems with Paul's Greek. In verses 1 through 5, we have the freedom of the gospel, which is what we're talking about today. And there's issues with his grammar. And in verses 6 through 10 which in your Bibles might look like four sentences. They're one sentence in Paul. And the sentence structure has these parenthetical statements, at least in two sections, that just kind of, what are you saying? Commentator J.B. Lightfoot, I believe, must have been an English teacher at some point in his life because he said of verse 4 of Paul's grammar, he calls it, quote, that shipwreck of grammar. I think some of my essays in high school must have had that written at the top. Paul gives us the result of a confrontation in verse 4 
or verse 3, but he doesn't tell us what the confrontation was until the following verse. And also, who are the false brethren? Where are they from? Were they from Antioch? And he's, the reason he's coming is because of them? Or are they from Jerusalem at this meeting? They knew that he was there. Or is he speaking about ones in Galatia years later and relating them back to this that happened years earlier? And then, of course, we have this old bugaboo of trying to explain what is circumcision and why is it important. But I would like to say this, and I will, yet Galatians is not about circumcision. It's not about rituals. It's not about ceremonies. But it is about guilt and freedom. It is about emancipation and freedom. It is about freedom in Christ and freedom from sin. And Paul has been called over the ages the Apostle of Freedom. And Galatians, his Magna Carta, his Charter of Freedom. And so we enter into this passage on the content of the Gospel with these things kind of there, but I do not believe that they, do, they take away anything from what Paul is saying. Perhaps harder to understand, but I desire, pray, that I could make it clear of what he speaks. But we enter that in chapter 2, we enter into a world of espionage. There are undercover spies. There are covert operations going on here. There are slave traders and there are those who are about to be taken hostage. And this is the language of, that he's using here. But instead of starting at verse 1, I want to do what makes it more clear to me and start in verse 4 to give you the reason or the background behind what Paul is saying, and that is to look at these infiltrators. Who were these that he speaks of as false brethren? He says in verse 4, But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. He calls them false brothers. Now we have to be careful because when we read Acts, Luke does not call every instance where we see people opposing Paul with this kind of language. He doesn't express them all as false brothers. There were some apparently in the church who were genuine Christians and yet there was confusion or at least they had thoughts about what ought to be added to the gospel. Here we see that Paul clearly calls them false brothers. Brothers because they confessed to be Christians. They were in the fellowship apparently or at least desired to be in the fellowship and wanted to be called brothers, brethren. But he calls them false because they really weren't. They were not of the truth. They were not of Christ. 
Then he says they snuck in, or the language could be that they were smuggled in, that somehow, surreptitiously, they were inserted into the conversation, either in Antioch, as I say, or in Jerusalem, but somehow coming in, not as those who would honestly come and say, you know, I'd like to have a conversation with the apostles or the leaders of the church. What is your gospel? Can we talk about it? I, can we get none of that? And the indication is the reason why they came, Paul says, they had sneaked in to spy out our liberty in Christ Jesus. They didn't come in as ones who really wanted to know. They came in as spies to spy out their freedom. So they may have owned a profession of faith. They may have been perhaps able to recite the creed. But they clung to an earnest and a permanent, it seems, longing for ritual, for ceremony, for things to be added, to bring believers in general under the authority of the law of Moses. Now some look at this and say that their desire for the Gentile Christians, for those who were pagans and had become Christians, was uh, to call them to goodly, godly service for the Lord. But that's not how Paul sees it. As one commentator says, if our gospel is incorrect, it's not just a mistake. It's a call for slavery, for enslavement. Paul uses that word slave to make us slaves, to bring us into bondage. So again, these are not just, a, well, I think you've got a few things wrong there. Paul is calling them false brothers who are spies, who only goal is to cause them to be enslaved by what they would desire to have the Christians do. And even a very elementary definition of slavery is that you come under someone's ownership. Murray Harris in his book Slaves of Christ says basic definition of slavery is a helpless victim to an overpowering influence that in effect owns the individual. You are owned by this. If the scripture says the borrower becomes a slave to the lender, he's basically owned until he pays off his debt. Here they would be owned by these who would cause them to fall under the authority of the law of Moses as a criterion for salvation. So freedom is the issue. Not circumcision, not rituals, not ceremonies, but freedom. And we're not talking here in this context of spiritual liberty in general, that we can have the freedom to meet as Christians. And we're not really talking about freedom from despots, from dictators, though of human authority. But in this context, it's freedom that is contained in the gospel of justification by faith. Period. Justification by faith 
without deeds of the law attached. That is what is under attack here. And Paul is saying they can't come to spy out that freedom. It's in the sphere of that freedom because we know that because he uses the word, the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus. It's in that sphere, not in the human realm, not in just some general spiritual realm, but in Christ Jesus. That's where the attack is taking place. But he uses the word in Christ Jesus, not the freedom that we have by Christ Jesus, but in Christ Jesus. And there is a difference. Yes, Christ did die to give us that freedom, did he not? But he's speaking here, we are by him by his death, but we are in him by his grace. Or again, as Edie says, by him it was secured to us, but in him we possess it. And that is the freedom that Paul would preserve here. That's the freedom for which he fights. That's Verse 5, but let's go back now and look at the controversy, look at the confrontation, and then come back to Paul, the freedom fighter. In verse 1, we have, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Who does he take with him? Well, his partner in ministry in Antioch was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And, and Barnabas had a ministry even before he went to Tarsus and said, hey, Paul, you know, Things are happening. People are coming to Christ. We need you. We need you in this ministry. But Paul says, and again, the language here I think helps us. He says, taking Titus along. We know Titus from the book of Titus. Paul has a special place in his heart for Titus. He calls him the, his son in the faith. There is this thing about Titus, that, this relationship that he has. And he says, it was because of a revelation that I went up. He repeats that phrase, I went up. Again, there's a hesitancy, I think you see here in, in the verse. He says, it was because of a revelation that I went up. When you read Acts, and Luke writes it, he says, Paul and Barnabas took the offering to Jerusalem. But, but for Paul, it was more than just, uh, you know, you and Barnabas get on your donkeys and ride. There's a hesitation here. Because he says, it was because of a revelation I went up. And again, it's foggy as to what that revelation was. Some people go back in Acts 11 to where Agabus gave the prophecy of the famine that would occur, and then they would take the offering, and then Paul would be in the group that went. I don't know, but what I get is a sense that Paul did not initially want to go. Barnabas, you can take that. You're a big boy. You can do that. But that God gave him some kind of a revelation that said, you need to be there, and you need to take that boy, Titus, that young man, with you. And we don't know who they met with. There are some who say he met publicly with the entire church. 
second part of the verse, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I believe this next phrase governs it, but I did so in, a, in private to those who were of rep reputation. That this was a private meeting. That Paul, in his, and I would say, fear, godly fear, nonetheless, some fear said, take it cautiously. Don't go publicly, go privately. Take the matter before those that you have met with before, those who are of reputation. Now, I don't understand, again, why he would call them that. What we understand is that it was to the leadership. Peter, James, perhaps, even John, perhaps, as we learn later on in this passage that he was there. But he told them these things with a view to confer with them about it. That's the meaning of this. I submitted to them. There is some humility here. Paul submitting his gospel, and you think, well, wait a minute, he's just been defending that gospel. But again, I don't think that's the point of this section of Galatians. But he tells them that I've been preaching this same gospel for 14 or 17 years, whatever it has been. That by the mercy of God you are saved, by the grace of God you are given life in his name, in Christ's name. Unhampered by legal requirements, unconditioned by a distinction to your race or to the blood flowing in your veins. That's what Paul submitted to them. That's the gospel that he preached. And yes, he preached that same gospel among the Jews as well because his habit was to go to the synagogue in a city first before he went to the Gentiles. So it is that self-same gospel. And he submitted to them. But does Paul have doubts about that gospel? He does say at the end of verse 2, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now surely, if you've read Paul, at least surely for me, as I've read Paul, he uses the metaphor of running. And of course Paul lived in the world, he was a Roman citizen, lived in the world where the Greek games were already prominent. And I get the picture here that he's speaking of running as we might define a relay race. The handing off of the baton from one runner to the other. And it brings out something of the effort and the, the strenuousness and the progress that he makes and sees that he needs to make in the preaching of the gospel. The effort that he has put in to these 14 years of preaching but he's not fearing that he is going to fall away from the faith. And I don't think he has a fear that his office as a minister is in danger. And I don't think he has any fear of others' opinion about his doctrine. But I believe what he fears is this, that if the apostles to whom he privately submits the gospel and the issues that are coming up about the gospel among the Gentile Christians, 
is not received or is somehow misunderstood so that they defy his arguments or put aside his arguments and insist on circumcision as essential for the gospel, essential for salvation, then his labor for that which marks his gospel to the Gentiles, that it is salvation by faith alone, without works, would have been in vain. And all of those baby Christians, all of those men and women and children who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who have put their faith and trust in him, will be sent to the bondage, the slavery of the law of Moses. They will be enslaved by what he has already called in chapter 1, another gospel, an anathema, something that is an abomination to God. So Paul brings before these men of whom we hear no dissent, and, and no sanctioning of his gospel, he brings a test case. Enter Titus, the Greek, the heathen, the pagan, the man who grew up with parents who were not Jewish, who didn't have that teaching, who didn't grow up knowing a lot of the things about the Old Testament and the background of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bring in Titus, and he says, not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, though he was a non-Jew, and would have been, had come to Christ as a non-Jew, was compelled that now he needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now again, there are those, I believe, who twist this and say, and perhaps the Greek allows this, that not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised, but he decided to anyway, adding to the scripture. But when you learn what compelled means, and even I think in English, we have the idea that something is compelling. There is a force involved, is there not? Either by authority, someone says, by the authority invested in me, I compel you. But it could also be in Greek that they could be compelled by threats and even threats of torture in order to cause someone to do something. And besides all that, for Titus to have been circumcised, we might as well close the book and all go home, because it would have been a concession to the very point that Paul was trying to defend. That if Titus had become circumcised, either by compulsion from outside, or saying, well, I'm not feeling very compelled by all the arguments, but I think I'd like to do it anyway. It would have been conceding the point 
the whole point, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now we don't, we're going to go into circumcision more because it's the, the point that Paul returns to more and more. But this idea, this law or ritual given to the Jews at the time that Abraham received the covenant blessing from the Lord in Genesis, this cutting of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ was never intended as a physical symbol only, but as a symbol of the covenant between God and man. And had with it, and I would recommend reading Chuck's, I think, very well-written and very readable excursus in his Genesis study from Thursday nights. Get that printout on circumcision. Very readable, explaining that it was to signify also not only the separateness of the Jewish people, but the command that he gives to Abraham and his descendants after him, walk before me and be blameless. There are some who say that this confusion starts with what is circumcision and who is circumcised in the New Testament, but in that article it very clearly explains that in Deuteronomy, and then in Jeremiah, as well as in the New Testament, we see writers writing, it is the circumcision of the heart that matters. Circumcision, yes, I believe at this time of Paul's writing to the Galatians is one of what is called a boundary marker. It's an ethnicity marker of, Jewish, of the Jewish ethnicity. They say that there are the markers are circumcision, the dietary laws, and the keeping of the Sabbath. But for a Greek, a heathen, to seek justification before God by circumcision, I think Paul has already said it's another gospel. It's anathema. And he would be held a slave to Jewish culture if he were to be circumcised. And that's as, as clear as I can see it. That's as clear as I can put it to you. Is that there was a push from these that Paul calls the false brethren, spying out that liberty. Why? To require them to become Jewish. To follow every marker of Jewish ethnicity. But for Paul, this was something worth fighting against, fighting to prevent. Because he says in verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. We didn't give an inch. He uses the word hour because apparently in that day that was the smallest time unit that they thought about was an hour. It, it, it would mean in our language, I didn't give it a moment's yield to anything that they were saying to listen to their argument. He would not submit to their demands of any part of the ceremonial law. 
And I believe, and I'll say it that way, I believe, not everyone would agree with me, but that for Paul, any part, however minute of the ceremonial law, meant for Paul keeping the entire law. And I'm still reading, I'm still researching, I just bought six books and found two more. There are arguments on both sides, but I don't understand how you take the entirety of the Mosaic Law and come up with three out of that that were specific. And we do not have much writings on Second Temple Judaism on what was the things that were, you know, at least in my reading, people saying, well, I can't find a lot. I'm still researching myself as I write this book. What did they mean? But Paul, and again, as we see the language against these false brethren, he said it's worth fighting. He was a freedom fighter. He was one that says, look, emancipation has been declared to you, but you're not living free if you are under that law. And I'm here to explain that to you. It, we, we, we have, in our country, we had that same kind of thing. The Emancipation Proclamation was given by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. And yet we still have a man standing on the steps of our nation's capital in 1963, finally declaring I've had a vision, I've seen it, we're free at last. And Paul, I think, would prevent us from having a hundred years or any year or any second from our emancipation to our freedom, where we understand what it is to live free in Christ. And so he says, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that and this is, to me, the crux. The truth of the gospel might remain in you. Now, the word of in, in Greek has always been hard for me. I can read the, I can read the Greek um, manuals and stuff and still come away. I don't know. It can be belong to or it can mean a part of. But I found this from Moises Silva. He says, truth is upheld only by the gospel. And the gospel is truly the gospel only if it corresponds to the truth. And there he combines both of them. It belongs to and it is a part of. Let me read it again. Truth is upheld only by the gospel. And the gospel is only the gospel if it corresponds to the truth. And notice that when Paul writes it, he says, the truth of the gospel. Not, as many in our day will tell you, a truth, the truth. Here, what we have behind, I think, this statement is the power of the gospel. One, to bring us into a right relation with God Almighty. To bring us into that right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But secondly, to keep us there. 
to keep us right there in Christ Jesus until, as we've been learning on Sunday nights, the day of the Lord. That great getting up morning, that day, that judgment day, when we will know completely, we will know the truth and we will see him as he is. Did not Jesus say, you shall, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Paul says, I'm fighting for this, that the truth of the gospel might remain in you. Not only the Gentile Christians in Galatia, the Jewish Christians in Galatia, to all of those who read this passage, all of those in Christ who sit here today, that you would know the truth because he knew that truth would set us free. John Stott says it better than I can, and I'll read his summary. The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. To introduce the works of the law and make our acceptance depend on our obedience to rules and regulation was to begin, bring a free man into bondage again. And Paul says, no, you were emancipated. You will live in freedom. Again, Murray Harris in his book on slaves of Christ says there are several aspects of freedom. There are things that we are freed from. And it's a beautiful list, and I'll give you some of them here. But it is freedom from spiritual death. Freedom, as we've already seen Paul say, from self-pleasing and from people-pleasing. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from the bondage of the law. Freedom from fear of physical death. Freedom, as Paul says, from the elemental forces of this present universe. But for us, we can take these things and we can say freedom from sin, freedom from physical death or spiritual death, freedom from all of these other things means that I can think about it now practically. Freedom from a wasted life. Freedom from slavery to material things. Freedom from lies that this world feeds us about what life means and where we came from. All of those freedoms we can begin to live in now because we can live in the truth of the gospel. And that's my second point as I finish. Not only freedom from things, but freedom to things. Freedom to give your life to Jesus Christ without fear. And freedom to give yourself to the truth of the gospel without fear. And freedom to give yourself to be on the front lines, along with Paul and others, to be a freedom fighter. So that the truth of the gospel might remain in us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. <laughs> we have no merit of it. We have no way that we could deserve it, no way that we can earn it. We thank you that it is all from you, that it's your idea, that you have given it to us,
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might live in it, walk in it, that we might pray in it, we might play in it, we might work in it, because it is truth that has come from you. And we ask that we would be given more understanding of these things, that we would talk of these things, that we would encourage one another with these words. We ask that you would do this for us as you build your church for your glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for benediction from John chapter 8. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed.